Hey there, fellow Year of Polygamy listeners. This is Glenn Ostlin from the Infants on Thrones podcast. And Lindsay has asked me to put together this little promo to share with you some very exciting news. First of all, it goes without saying that Lindsay has done an amazing job with this podcast over the past three and a half years. But I'm going to say it anyway. Lindsay has done an amazing job with this podcast over the past three and a half years. And now she's ready to take it to the next level. Now, what exactly is that next level? Have any of you listened to the Serial podcast? From This American Life and WBEZ Chicago, it's Serial, one story told week by week. I'm Sarah Koenig. How about S-Town? Something's happened. Something has absolutely happened in this town. There's just too much little crap for something not to have happened. Finding Richard Simmons? Yeah, that Richard Simmons. You know the guy. Short shorts, bedazzled tank tops, a big curly head of hair, halfway between Jimi Hendrix and Little Orphan Annie. Now, there are some really amazing podcasts out there right now that tell stories in a carefully crafted, highly produced, very engaging way. Now, wouldn't it be awesome if the stories that Lindsay has uncovered here on the Europe Polygamy podcast could be told in that same serial kind of style? Well, that's exactly what Lindsay wants to do. And I'm going to help her do it. And all of you can too. Because now I've been telling Lindsay all about how great it has been since Infants on Throne started our Patreon page this past June. So guess what? Lindsay is starting a Patreon page for Year of Polygamy too. I know, right? And you can all support her as her patrons. For as little as $1 an episode, you can help support Lindsay's efforts not only to keep Year of Polygamy podcast continuing, but to also start crafting a new sister podcast, a, I don't know, Year of Polygamy storytellers kind of thing. So that something like this... There was supposedly a riot that occurs as these men are seen with the women. The men, the Mormon men are getting more and more upset. There was a street riot where there's a big, huge brawl. Nobody was killed, but there was a lot of men fighting on both sides. Could sound a little more like something like this. There was supposedly a riot that occurs as these men are seen with the women. There was a street riot where there's a big, huge brawl. Nobody was killed, but there was a lot of men fighting on both sides. Now, I know that's kind of cheesy sounding. You know, it just added some music, some sound effects. But what we would do is actually script out some stories, would create seasons and would have episodes and would craft it to tell the many compelling stories that there are to tell from the Year of Polygamy podcast. Now, like I said, Lindsay will continue to bring you the Year of Polygamy podcast as she has in the past. That's not going to change. But your support on Patreon will free up some time and resources so that Lindsay can focus on a new direction for a sister podcast. Plus, you really just want to see this woman succeed, don't you? I do. So head over to Patreon forward slash Year of Polygamy and show your support for Lindsay today. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Remember when I said that there's hardly anything in Mormonism that polygamy hasn't touched? Also, remember when I said that polygamy has shaped the American West? Sometimes I feel like a crazy person shouting into the wind saying this, but I think this story is going to illustrate yet another example of how those two statements are true. I'm going to tell a very complicated story that has a lot of moving pieces, so it'll probably take a few episodes to do that. So if you don't hear everything in this episode, don't worry, we're going to have another episode where I talk about this. I'm going to be telling the story of two characters here, John Singer and Vicki Lemon Singer. 
This is a story that is sort of paradoxical because if you grew up in the 70s and 80s, maybe you have heard their name. Maybe you even know parts of the story. But I was born in the early 80s and I had never heard anything about this until I started to investigate this era of fundamentalism. What's fascinating to me about this entire era of fundamentalism in the 1970s and 80s is not only that it's so close, but that it's so present. It's so informative of Mormonism and the American culture. And although Mormonism is indeed a global faith, it's a global church, it's also very much still a Utah church. Most LDS people would not like to say that. Most LDS people want to talk about it being a global church. There are efforts being made to make it more, you know, globally competent. But at the end of the day, the leaders are very much informed by their mostly Utah upbringing, their mostly American upbringing, their mostly white upbringing, and their headquarters are in Utah. And we can see it still today that their policies, their doctrine, their theology, their quotations and their reactions are very much, you know, informed by what's going on in Utah politics and American politics. Right now, there's a huge effort underway by the LDS leadership to talk about religious freedom. And the way that they talk about religious freedom is meant to have global applications, but really the language and the way that they use it is really applying it just to an American government. And this is, this is something interesting that I think that this story that I'm going to tell explores. Remember how I talk about this tension between authority, church authority, and personal revelation. It's this long-standing tension in Mormon theology that has existed since Joseph Smith said, hey, everybody can have personal revelation unless it bumps up against what I've told you to do, and then we have a problem. That tension has always existed, and it's definitely presented in you know the struggles in Mormon fundamentalism. But it's also, like I said in the last episode, everything is sort of a mirror of American culture. And this tension between personal revelation and authority is no different. Mormonism has almost an identical history with government authority. On the one hand, we consider America to be a choice and promised land. I mean, it's in our scriptures that says that, right? The Book of Mormon is basically manifest destiny in written form. It's really just, you know, a mirror of 19th century American mind. And we have this idea where we love the government. It's in our articles of faith where we uphold the government, we respect the government. You know, I was just down hanging out with Mormon fundamentalists who talk about how the American Constitution is divinely inspired and that our founding fathers of the American government have been baptized and had their work done for them, you know, in the spirit world because they were men of God and they were supposed to do this. So on the one hand, we absolutely love the American government and we love American authority. And yet, especially in pockets of Utah, and throughout Mormon history, we've had this huge struggle with government authority. I mean, Joseph Smith was constantly fleeing from the law. He was warring with the law. He declared open war on the government, not once, but many times, as did Brigham Young. Brigham Young had a famous standoff with the American federal government. And this would not go away, this sentiment of government, keep your you know greedy paws off of my religion is something that we see presented over and over again, especially in Mormon fundamentalism. Now, our story takes place in the 70s and 80s, but really it starts before them. I'm going to bring in the characters, but remember that they are sort of brought into the church at the time in the 1930s and 40s. And again, as Mormonism mirrors American politics, Mormonism is grappling with this idea of moving away from plural marriage. And so that means having to question the authority, the LDS hierarchy, who says, Polygamy, the saving ordinance, is no longer going to be allowed in our church. So people that have been living it and practicing it and fighting their own federal government for it now sees their church kowtowing to the American authority, and they have to question their own patriarchal authority. So as they're grappling with the tensions between the LDS authority and personal revelation, their personal revelation is telling them to never give up these saving principles. I don't think it's an accident that one of our main characters, a character in the story, John Singer, is born out of this time. But his story gets even more complicated. It's as if you were to write a script for someone to end up like John Singer does. You would write his past precisely how John Singer's past plays out. 
John Singer has all the components of the American Manifest Destiny dream. He's sort of this, you know, wayward immigrant coming up from the bottom, building a life for himself. And yet he fits because he's also not an immigrant, but he is. He's not in the sense that he was born in New York City, but he is in the sense that his father, Hans, and Charlotte Singer are German and moved back to Germany in the early 1930s. His father joins up with uh, the Nazi party, and his mother puts him, enrolls him in a very prestigious elite school that is run by the SS. So for a time, John Singer is sort of forced into the Hitler youth. Now, I'm going to uh, play some clips from John Singer later on, but I'm, I would also encourage you to watch the video, the links that I put up, so you can see a picture of John Singer, because watching him is almost like watching a caricature of someone playing the role of John Singer. I mean, when I saw him, it was surprising how much he fit this character. He's almost, if I could explain him, he's like an American Gothic per- portrayal of a German immigrant and American farmer. He's skinny and sort of sinewy, but he's tough and rugged. He has a very thick German accent. He can have at times a soft-spoken voice of a Mormon patriarch with the kind and gentle eyes, but he can speak with the fire and brimstone of an early Mormon prophet. He has the stubbornness of a very independent thinker, and you're going to see that show up. But his story starts in Nazi Germany as he is being forced to be indoctrinated to the Hitler Youth. Now, John might have just taken it. He might have just assimilated into German culture, and that would have been the end of the story. But here's where Mormonism comes in. John's mother, Charlotte, converts to Mormonism. Now, I resonate with this story because I have a lot of German ancestry, and the apocryphal stories in our house are about how pre-World War II, you know, my family was preparing to convert to Mormonism, and they're at Bible school, and the SS comes in with their batons and beating people and breaking them up for freedom of religion. And, and the way that my family tells it almost mirrors the story of like the pilgrims coming to America for religious freedom, right? Those evil Nazis wouldn't let them practice their faith, so they had to flee to the promised land for their religious freedom. John Singer's story is not that different. So his mother, Charlotte, converts to Mormonism, and she's very much endeared to it. This is a problem for John's father, Hans. Hans does not like the faith. He's very loyal to his state. So right away, John sees this conflict between state authority and personal revelation that I've been talking about. Now, maybe if Charlotte had just supported her husband, Hans, that would have been the end of it, but she didn't. She was very adamant that she teach her children the Mormon religion. Now, there's, there's uh, talk about the SS schools at the time. You should know, and this comes into play later, this pattern, this theme is very important, that it was said that the Hitler youth, if they didn't like, if the leadership didn't like how you were teaching your children religiously or politically, they could pull you out of your home and put them in a foster home with parents that they thought were teaching you more correct principles, if you will. That's a very Mormon language, but that's how this was happening. And Charlotte knew this. She knew that if she questioned the authority of these Hitler youth, that her children could potentially be raised by the state. So she does something kind of controversial at the time. She divorces her husband and moves them back to America. She decides to gather with the saints in Utah. Now, this is important, too, because John would have seen this. He would have seen his mother stand up to the secular state. Now, John is aligned with his mother with this rebellious nature because John is actually expelled with his brother from this SS Hitler Youth School for, quote, rebellious behavior. So right away, John does not like this authoritarian state approach to education. He's not having it. So he comes with his mother, brother, and sister over to America, and they decide to gather to the promised land in Utah. And, you know, John, of course, bumps into authority again when he is drafted into the army. He gets out of there as quickly as he can. He does not enjoy his time in the military. He does not like answering to this strict state authority and it doesn't go well for him. So he gets out as quick as he can and he starts doing, you know, odd jobs, handy repair. He works as a TV repairman for a while. Eventually, he runs into some um, prominent Salt Lake thinkers. There was a man named Gustav Weller 
who owned a furniture store and later turned it into a bookstore called Zion's Bookstore. Well, Gustav and his wife move up to a small, sleepy little farming community near Park City called Marion, Utah. Now, Marion, Utah is about 18 miles east of Park City. You would never really know it. It's sort of over the crests and hills of Park City. Park City is interesting because it is pretty well-known. It's globally well-known. When you think of Park City, Utah, you either think of world-renowned skiing or you think of Hollywood celebrities. Every year they have the Sundance Film Festival that Robert Redford, you know, founded and they bring up all the Hollywood celebrities every winter and have this glamorous film festival in this little resort town. It's full of liberal thinkers, a lot of wealthy people. But what a lot of people don't know is that just east of that is this little community of Marion, Utah and Camas, Utah. Now, as a girl, I would go to Camas, Utah. We have a girls camp up there owned by the LDS Church. And some of my most fond memories are at Oak Crest Girls Camp in Camas, Utah. I've gone camping up there. It's a lovely little town. A lot of the homes are still pioneer era homes, you know, from the Mormon settlers that came in. And what is less known about Marion, Utah, at least at the time, was that Marion, Utah was a hotbed, not just for Mormonism, but Mormon fundamentalism. In fact, its very name is taken from Mormonism. The name Marion has been credited to the name of Francis Marion Lyman, who, as we know, is the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for a time, and first started the first ward there in 1909. Marion, Utah becomes sort of a place for a lot of independent people who have fundamentalist leanings but don't necessarily, you know, adhere to a prophet. Gustav Weller was someone like that. He had a bookstore, science bookstore, which if you're in Utah, you might know what it is now. It's the famous Sam Weller's bookstore. When Gustav moves to Marion, Utah, he lets his son Sam run his bookstore. And now Sam Weller's is a very famous, you know, bookstore in Salt Lake City that everybody loves. But Gustav and his and his wife move up to Marion, Utah, and they really start hanging out with a lot of other people, you know, a lot of um, European immigrants, German and Swedish and Danish people up there who are converted to the principles of the gospel that the LDS Church has sort of moved away from. Gustav becomes a controversial figure, but because he has met John Singer, John Singer is really endeared to him. So Gustav actually leases some of his property and eventually sells it to John Singer. And this is where John Singer has his famous, what they would later call the, quote, Singer compound. He gets it from Gustav Weller. So that is our first character in the story is John Singer, a man who is trying to homestead now, trying to run away from the state just to mind his own business and live his religion the way he wants. Now, because he's running with some of these Mormon fundamentalists, the LDS community up there doesn't really, doesn't really fit well with him. Uh, they, they consider him maybe an apostate or an outlier. That brings in our second character of the story, Vicki Lemon Singer. Now, Vicki Lemon was born to a family who had long been in the Marion and Camas area. Her mother had come from Wyoming, but some of her family had, you know, were settlers of the Camas area. In fact, Vicky's grandmother, Beatrice Tolman Coiner, owned and operated the Camas Valley Grocery and Camas Valley Meatpacking Company. It was Vicky's mother, Marjorie, who was a Camas Valley Fiesta Days queen in 1940. So they had a lot of, a lot of popularity there. Vicky herself was said to have been a homecoming queen at her school there. She was prominent and she was known uh, around the community. They were, you know, sort of old stock Camas people, old stock Marian people. She, of course, meets John Singer. Now, she's 20 years old at the time. John Singer's 32. They decide they want to get married, but there's a problem. As is the theme of John Singer's life, nothing can just simply be a simple choice. There's a persecution with it. There's a trial. And, you know, he's, John Singer's keeping company with some strange individuals, and he wants to marry, you know, the town's sweetheart, Vicki Lemon. Vicki Lemon's family doesn't sit well with this, and it's not because of the 12-year age difference. It's more that John Singer is strange. He's an apostate. He's, he's seen as someone that is not really, 
you know, worthy of their daughter. In September of 1963, John and Vicki escaped to Elko, Nevada, where it's said that, you know, it was this dramatic escape that sort of mirrors the story of Joseph Smith running away with Emma Smith. They're just a few steps away from her family, who it's said in the stories were um, intended to arrest John and have him arrested for kidnapping Vicki and have her committed to a mental hospital in Provo so they could change their mind. But through all of this intrigue and drama, the couple manages to escape the clutches of her family and they get married in Elko, Nevada, and they settle down on John's homestead in Marion, Utah. Now, John and Vicki really try to pattern their homestead after a sur- survivalist community, but really they saw themselves as not survivalists, but going back to, you know, the ideals of the 19th century homesteading community. And if you look at pictures of the homestead, it really does fit that. There's, you know, rugged log cabins, beautiful pine trees. They really probably had, for a lot of things, an idyllic existence up there on this ranch. Now, even though Vicky's family thought that John Singer was an apostate, as we know, Mormon fundamentalists are anything but. If anything, they're guilty of they're guilty of being too Mormon, following the Mormon fundamentals. And John Singer was one of them. He was an ardent believer, and he resented that the church had kowtowed to the government. This is not an unusual tension that Mormon fundamentalists find themselves in with the LDS church. Again, it goes back to this tension that I'm talking about of authority versus personal revelation. You see it in how we view the American government. You see it in how we view LDS authority. And John Singer is no stranger to this, especially as someone who has grown up fighting authority his entire life, fleeing authority. This is very powerfully in his bones. He would have family members try to rebuke him for his fundamentalist ways and try to bring him back into the fold. But he was said to be a good neighbor. People liked him. They just knew, you know, they kind of left him alone. And, and that was that. Vicki had seven children with John Singer on their property. But John Singer didn't buy the idea that when, you're, when the prophet speaks, the thinking had been done. John had learned enough in his life to know that you don't give any sort of submission to a leader like that. Again, he'd grown up under Nazi Germany. He was not about to do that again. So in 1972, John and Vicki were excommunicated by the LDS Church. What's ironic is in Marion, Utah, it's a small town. So don't forget that this isn't like this isn't some big metropolis. This is a small town where everybody knows each other and has probably known each other for years. So when you're excommunicated, you go into a court. It's called a church court where they hold sort of this church tribunal and they tell you your crimes. And, and in this case, it was apostasy. These two had, had you know, ideas that went outside of, of the norm. And I'm sure that they weren't always compliant with their LDS, their local LDS leaders. So they go into a church court. What's ironic is that on the high council, on this court that's going to excommunicate the two of these, uh, the, these people, was the local principal of the school and several, several other officials that would be involved in the standoff with John Singer later on. They are excommunicated. This actually doesn't just make them rumored apostate, apostates. It makes them apostates in the eyes of all their neighbors, and this makes, them, makes it difficult for them to earn a living, to maintain friendships, um, and to have, you know, the companionship of neighbors that they had had before. It's said that they would go into town in Camas and they would receive hate and discrimination from their neighbors. And that might sound dramatic, but that still happens today. That's not something that's completely unusual to Mormon groups. Now, John would find himself in the situation of authority yet again, when he decided to take on a plural wife. He married, uh, in 1978, he married Shirley Black. He sort of recreates the same situation with Shirley Black, where her family is really upset that Shirley is marrying John Singer. And they're not only upset because he's an apostate or a polygamist. They're upset because Shirley Black is already married to someone, and she has four children. So John yet again finds himself going against societal norms and doing what he does best, which is whatever he wants. So the two families, the two wives live with John on this compound. Now, the fact that uh, 
Shirley Black's children have, you know, have another father comes into play later on. It comes into some issues with custody and the government, which doesn't sit well with John Singer. That's the story. That's the setting. These are the characters. Now we're going to back up and talk about how polygamy has influenced a lot of the things in Utah and broader American culture. You probably didn't know that prior to 1980s, you really couldn't homeschool your kids. There were said to be around 15,000 children in all of America that were being homeschooled, but really it wasn't even allowed in most states. In the early 1900s, the federal government made it compulsory to attend public school. And in a lot of ways, this was a positive thing because America was able to educate the populations at a faster rate than other countries, thus putting their citizens ahead of, you know, other people in some economic ways. It was a good thing. A lot of people that wouldn't have had an education otherwise received one. But if you didn't like what the school was teaching, that would be a problem because you were sort of subject to the curriculum of the state. It's still a huge deal in Utah, actually. There's this huge uh, controversy about the core teaching, state core curriculum. It's still a debate. Uh, all my family are educators. My sisters are teachers. My grandma, my aunts, they're all teachers. And Common Core is a huge debate still happening today. So these tensions have not died, but they show up for the singers. Now, the singers are upset because in the 60s and 70s, there are some movements happening in the larger American culture that are threatening to Mormon fundamentalists. The civil rights movement is one of them, where African-American people are asking for equal rights and protections under the law. The feminist movement is happening, and it's making people with really conservative ideas, especially Mormon fundamentalists who believe that black people were ordained in the preexistence to you know, have a harder time and be lesser than white people. This is a hard thing for them. So Vicki Singer, you know, talks openly that she doesn't like that her children are going to public school and they are seeing pictures of black and white kids together. She doesn't like that black and brown kids are coming to school classes or might come to school with her children. She doesn't like that they're showing pictures of interracial couples. Now, I'm going to play a clip of John Singer and Vicki Singer talking about their views. This is from a Mike Watkiss documentary. I'm going to link the YouTube clip. And you're going to hear parts of it. We're going to cut in half, and then we're going to come back to half of the documentary. You see, people always have the wrong idea. Just because somebody mentions this word law, that everybody has to bow to it. I do not believe that way at all. Right or wrong, John Singer was the kind of man whose will could not be broken. A fundamentalist and a polygamist with two wives, John Singer lived in the mountains of northern Utah, where he and his large family triggered an avalanche of violence and bloodshed nearly three decades ago. A sad saga that left John Singer and a Utah police officer dead a story that could also serve as a cautionary tale for authorities today as they continue their pursuit of fugitive polygamous prophet Warren Steed Jeffs. We would not make the first move, but I would not let anybody come into my home and take my children away from me without putting up some type of a fight. And for John Singer, the problem started when he and his first wife, Vicki, pulled all of their children out of public schools in the late 1970s, just as Warren Jeffs did with hundreds of his followers' children about six years ago. The reason for the singers? Because the textbook showed pictures of black and white people together. John and I believe that there should be segregation in the races. They're integrating, integrating the books. He just objected to the textbook. At first, the state of Utah agreed to let the singers do something almost unheard of at the time, homeschool their children. But when John then refused to even let state officials monitor the education, a series of angry court battles erupted, leading to an arrest warrant being issued for John Singer. Okay, we're going to come back to that. So as you hear John and Vicki talk about how they feel about law, how they feel about government, how they feel about schools teaching their kids, 
And if you watch this old footage, it's also interesting. They're living up in the mountains. It's almost as if you're watching a scene from Heidi. You know, these brown cabins, rugged log cabins, women with braided hair, and the girls are dressed like you'd picture traditional polygamous girls in like pioneer dresses, but they're almost in the style of like, you know, early 18th century German dresses. So it's really interesting to see. Now, I'm going to heavily cite from an article that's published on BYU, BYU School of Law. It's really, it's a really good article, and I think that you should all read it, especially if you're interested in the history of homeschooling, because this goes into great detail about the laws and the history of the homeschool movement. But what you're going to see is really how the singer, singer swap case really is going to inform, you know, this history. So I'm going to read from it now. Um, the, the title of the article is called Parental Rights Movement on Utah's Capitol Hill Should Not Make Gains at the Expense of the State's Children by David B. Dibble. And it was published in the Brigham Young University Education and Law Journal in spring of 2005. So I'll link to that. But it explains the conflict as follows. Quote, Two weeks after the Singers had withdrawn their children from public school, the superintendent of the local school district visited the Singers and invited them to meet with the school board about their decision to homeschool their children. John Singer explained that their decision to homeschool was an issue of their right to practice religion, quote, without interference from the government. The school board provided the Singers with a copy of Utah's compulsory education law and informed them that they could apply for an exemption. But by law, the reasons for homeschooling children must be acceptable to the school board. John Singer responds to the school board by letter telling them, quote, Go to hell, you and your kind, for such unrighteous demands. End quote. By the end of 1973, after the superintendent had consulted with the attorney general's office on the matter, the school filed a complaint in juvenile court to force the Singers to comply with the law. The Singers were charged with contributing to the delinquency and neglect of their children. Now, let's think about this for a minute. As, as parents, it's already hard to have the state, you know, come in and tell you how to educate your kids. But with Mormons, it's even more so. You know, in, even in my Mormon ward um, in Utah, just a few years ago, I remember having a conversation with a woman I really respected who was really arguing in our Relief Society playgroup to have the right to beat her children with a spoon. She didn't like the idea that the government could come and take her kids out of the home for that. She felt like that was her right. She was beaten with a spoon as a child, and she felt it did her a lot of good. And how dare the government come in and take her kids away if she wanted to, to discipline her kids the way that she wanted to. This is still a thread that runs very deeply, I would say, in Mormonism and in larger American culture. So back to the article, quote, When the deputy sheriff tried to execute a warrant for Singer's arrest, John Singer refused to go, and the officer left in peace. So the officer comes to his house, tries to arrest him. John Singer's like, there's no way I'm going with you. And because all these people know each other, the officer's like, well, I don't know what to do. This guy's not complying. I'm just going to go. Eventually, John Singer does relent, and he goes to the courthouse, and he begrudgingly agrees to work out a homeschool plan with the school district to come up with, you know, a way that he can comply and meet, you know, the superintendent's standards to make sure that the kids are not being neglected. So, you know, the, the school district tries to work with the singers. They work out this agreement and they agree to sort of leave the singers alone for the most part. But the singers would have to meet a few conditions. And one of the conditions was the school board's right to monitor the education program. Now, remember, John Singer grew up with a state education as, an, as a Hitler youth. He was very suspicious of this. So to him, I imagine it must have felt like the state coming in and threatening to pull out the kids, just like the SS did. He didn't like this. But they give it a shot, and after only just a few months of complying with these conditions... The singer said, you know what, we bow down to the government long enough, we're not going to do it anymore, and they start ignoring the requirements. Now, there's this interesting story of uh, John Singer early on is working out in his field, he hears some kids screaming, he goes down by the creek, and there's two kids that are drowning, two boys that are drowning in 
the local creek by the, I just called it creek because I've been to Short Creek so much, by the creek out by his property. He's, he rescues and saves the lives of these two little boys who are drowning in the water. And it's said that uh, the parent of one of those boys was involved in the school board and might have been the school psychologist. The school psychologist was very grateful for the time, but is actually sent by the school board to monitor and test the singer children. So in April of 1975, he does that, and he determines that the kids are not caught up with their peers. Their education is not sufficient. The kids are suffering um, according to their age group. So, of course, this doesn't sit well with the singers, and they decide, well, that's it. We're not going to let anyone come in and test our kids anymore, if that's how they're going to respond. So the school board tries to keep negotiating, and it fails. The singers will not comply. So the school board again reports their case to the juvenile court. In August of 1977, John Singer finds himself in court yet again. And he relies on a case that is also linked in this article that I'm going to tell you about. It's uh, Wisconsin versus Yoder, and it's a case of the Amish community dealing with something similar. John Singer refers to this and argues that Utah's compulsory education law is actually unconstitutional. So it goes back and forth, but the government is actually, the Utah government is trying to say that Vicki Singer is you know, neglectful, neglectful of her kids. And here's where we have Robert Ray Black, who I interviewed last time, talking about, you know, worrying that the government is going to come and take Vicki Singer's children. Robert talks about coming into the courthouse with tear gas and a shotgun ready to rain down the fire and fury of the kingdom of God onto this government if they take Vicki's kids away. And lucky, luckily for everybody, this hearing never happens and Vicky's kids are not taken away at the time. And especially luckily for Robert Ray Black, who, you know, at the time was very, according to him, very stupid. He said he was very stupid and he was lucky that nothing happened. So he didn't have to employ that violence he was planning on. But people were getting involved in this now. This was really speaking to the hearts and minds of a lot of people, especially Mormon fundamentalists, who were concerned with the creeping in of secular education Now, they would have a reason to be concerned because this is now in 1977, 1978. Of course, what else happens in 1978? The LDS Church, according to many Mormon fundamentalists, would bow to the government and secular demands and grant priesthood to men of of African descent and allow black black men and black women into the temple, thus desecrating the temple. This is unheard of. So from their perspective, all around them, the Mormons are caving in yet again to government authority and ignoring the revelation and the authority of their prophets. Back to the article, quote, The children were not removed from the Singer home, but DCFS was given the right to monitor the children. In September of 1977, the Singer's battle with the state began to attract the attention of both the local and national media. The singers were featured in local news articles and television interviews. They began to receive calls from people all over the state offering them suggestions on how to beat the school district and juvenile court. The singers failed to appear at trial since, in their view, the compromise was out of the question and there could be no recourse from the juvenile court. When the singers failed to appear, the judge, the judge issued a warrant for their arrest and found them guilty of child neglect in January of 1978. So let's play the rest of the Watkiss video for a minute. I looked out the window and I saw three men on top of John. And I just ran out the door. Indeed, on one occasion, heavy-handed cops posing as reporters tried to tackle Singer and take him in. But the raw-boned farmer fought back and got away. And suddenly, John Singer was a folk hero. I told him I ain't got no interest in shooting him, but I told him I... If you ever tie it again, I blow your stupid heads off. But a short time later, it was John Singer who was shot and killed by police. They say he pulled a gun on them as they tried to arrest him out by his mailbox one morning. A shooting that silenced Singer, but only made the cries of his family and his supporters louder. This woman is John Singer's sister. Are you happy? I didn't do that. No, but you I were have... part of it. No, I'm not. Oh, you better believe it. Your blood on this is on his, your hands too. I'm sorry. And this face-off between religious fundamentalism and secular law didn't end there. 
A couple of years later, John Singer's son-in-law, a young man named Adam Swap, who had married two of John Singer's daughters, then tried to avenge John's death by blowing up a nearby Mormon church, an act that Adam Swap reportedly believed would lead to John Singer's second coming. The chapel in the building and the uh, cultural hall is totally destroyed. Adam Swap and the rest of the heavily armed Singer family then held police at bay for nearly two weeks until they shot and killed a police officer by the name of Fred House. Armored vehicles then rolled into the Singer's compound to end the standoff, a bloody little footnote in America's polygamist history, but also a powerful reminder to just how fast violence can erupt when secular law collides with fundamentalist beliefs in places like northern Utah, in places like Colorado City, and in places like West Texas. The option is not with them. If they're going to kill me, it's with my God. So you hear the story of Adam Swap blowing up the stake center. We're going to actually talk about that in next episode. So we'll get to all of that. But as you see, the first standoff happens. It's said that, you know, there's a warrant issued for his arrest. And, of course, the singers have failed to appear in court. They've sort of given up with this. And so three or four police officers disguised as television reporters and camera crew show up and sort of, try to ambush John. John, of course, this, you know, this is what Vicki Singer, you hear her talking on the video about. She sees these men on her. She pulls up to the driveway. She sees these men attacking her husband. She and her kids get out. Vicki actually goes up and um, starts attacking them too. John Singer says he pulls a gun from his waistband and orders these men off his property. He says, get off me or I'll kill you. And Vicki Singer jumps on uh, Robert Wadman, who was one of the men involved in trying to apprehend John Singer, and it says that she grabbed him by the tie, shoved a fist in his face, and told him she was going to, quote, knock his teeth out. Several of their children, you know, loyal to their parents, come and jump on them and kick and punch and scratch at them in sort of this frenzy of getting their father to be, you know, free. And of course, it works. The men withdraw, and John Singer does not get apprehended. But because it was such a violent incident, this becomes a problem for the government, and and the government is you know going to file more warrants against them. Now, John Singer said he confessed to Vicky at the time that the gun that he had pulled on the officers was not loaded; he just happened to have it at the time. Now, of course, the government knows that they're polygamists. They know that this is a problem. And so they face new legal problems when, in October of 1978, the district court awards Dean Black a decree of a divorce from Shirley Black, who's now John Singer's plural wife, and give Dean Black temporary custody of the children. But in typical John Singer fashion, when the government comes to get the children, Singer refuses to surrender them. So this is where it gets tricky. Because he had arrested, he had resisted arrest the first time and it was very, you know, aggressive, a felony bench warrant was issued. And this sort of gives, you know, the government legal authorization to use deadly force if, if necessary. So the story goes that the government was going to come in with a lot of force. And according to one of the men, Ron Gunderson, who, was, who took part in the arrest, he said, quote, the key to the plan was that the reasonable man, when surrounded and confronted with a show of force, would submit. The problem was John Singer was not a reasonable man, end quote. What happens is, on the morning of January 18th, 1979, Gunderson and nine other officers have been surrounding the compound for a while and been watching the Singer compound. Now, Singer knows this. He knows he's being watched. He's not a dummy. And he goes out to do his daily duties, and he's clearing his driveway with a snowblower. This is when he sees officers approach him. He knows this. This has happened before. And so he goes into his... It's said he goes... Uh, he turns to, his, to run into his house, but he reaches for his thirty-eight Colt pistol. Now, the next part is very controversial. We'll never quite know what happened. According to officers, uh, he pointed the gun at them. According to family members, his back was turned. 
We don't know, but we do know that John Singer was fired upon by the officers. Now, there are a lot of conspiracy theories out there by different people, a lot of them Mormon fundamentalists, but also John Singer has become a folk hero because of this. So there's a lot of people that believe that he was murdered in cold blood, that the the arrest was a setup and that they came in ready to kill him and that there was a cover-up involved. But either way, he was killed. Vicky would say, quote, It's very ironic to say the least that now I'm teaching my kids the same way that John and I did before he died, and I think the state knows it. But all they wanted to do was to show us and show other people that if anybody tried to come against the system, watch out because this is what can happen to you. Now, they... um tried to get lawyers with the help of Gary Spence. They tried to obtain civil redress for the murder of John. And of course, the case is dismissed. And that's where, you know, things stayed for a while. Until January of 1988, on the eve, you know, of John Singer's death, where Adam Swap, John Singer's son-in-law, attempts to get some vengeance for his father-in-law. And of course, that's what we're going to talk about next episode. But this is sort of a tragic story, and what it really does is it inspires a lot of sympathy, once again, for polygamists around the country. People see this this German immigrant who just wanted to raise his children the way he wanted to being murdered. Uh, You sort of have a split on both sides. What right does the government have to interfere in the home? And what right does a polygamous man have to teach his kids and maybe neglect them with the attitudes of the state? Let's go back to the article and read some of their analysis. They say, quote, John Singer's death touched off widespread public reaction, the likes of which Utah had not experienced that century. The major newspapers in the state were flooded with letters and editorials. One local newspaper in, in its editorial wrote, quote, The controversy engulfing Mr. Singer and his family has triggered prolonged and deep emotional reaction throughout Utah, and to a lesser extent, across the nation. Sides have been chosen over whether or not anyone has the right to educate his children at home. Even the New York Times, in response to Utah's action, ran an editorial entitled, That'll Teach the Singer Children, criticizing the state's zeal in enforcing its truancy laws. Almost everyone who had anything to do with the Singer case received threatening letters, telegrams and telephone calls at their offices and homes. The Utah State Capitol had to be evacuated when someone called in a bomb threat. Some sympathetic to the singer's response with, responded with anger towards the state. Utah's superintendent of public instruction responded in defense of the state's compulsory education law, claiming that they were necessary and they needed to be more uniformly enforced. Members of the state school board expressed grief at the Singer tragedy and met together to discuss ways to, quote, enhance their image and inform the public of their leadership role. Even Utah's governor responded to the incident. He called the shooting a tragedy, but also pointed out that society must live by a set of rules. Quote, without these rules, there would be anarchy and society couldn't, couldn't survive. The year following Singer's death, the first Utah Home Education Association conference was held, leading to the radical transformation in homeschooling laws, child welfare welfare laws, and parental rights in Utah and around the country. Okay, so the article goes into more depth about this, and you can read more about this, but this is what's so fascinating. Prior to John Singer's death, maybe 15,000 kids were being homeschooled. Now today, millions of children are being homeschooled. In fact, by 1995, the number had increased to about 500,000 kids, and now it's millions of children in America that can be homeschooled. It's now actually allowed in all 50 states. John Singer's death and his fundamentalist ideas really inform these laws. We like to think of polygamy as like this little Utah, you know, anomaly, but it's not. Fundamentalism really does, has informed America. Mormonism has informed America. Some people see it as a weird little fringe religion, but in reality, it really did shape the American West, and the American West shaped it. The two, you cannot talk about the West without talking about Mormonism. It is the thing, Mormons were colonizers. They were developers. They, they shaped everything. They shaped the racial discourse in, in America. They were very involved politically in the racial discourse. They were involved in the feminist discourse. It's, it's hard to separate the two, so it's absolutely influenced. And 
as we're talking about this period, it's really important for you all to understand that Mormon fundamentalism isn't just the FLDS down in Colorado City, you know, following Warren Jeffs in their prairie dresses. Mormon fundamentalism is everywhere. And if you're listening to this and you know Mormons, chances are you know Mormon fundamentalists. I've talked to many LDS peoples who say, I've seen the polygamists at Costco, but I don't know any polygamists. And I would argue, I bet that you do. I bet that you do know Mormon fundamentalists. You might not know it. I mean, I've, I've spent so much time now with Mormon fundamentalists that integrate everywhere. In fact, I just recently met a woman from my old stake who has been a plural wife as long as I've known her, and I had no idea. It's everywhere. These ideas are everywhere. I've, I just spent this last weekend with two women who are polygamous wives and spend time at the LDS church. I spent time with men who are on the high councils in their LDS wards, and if they're not polygamous themselves, subscribe and hang out with a fundamentalist all the time. The two are so ingratiated, I don't think we can ever accurately determine how widespread this is. Because these ideas are so murky. It's in this murky soup of Mormonism. And when we talk about, can the church back away from polygamy? I don't know, because polygamy is everywhere. It's, it's built into the laws. And if you don't know a polygamist, chances are you voted for one. Or you live next to one. Or your kids go to school and are taught by one. I mean, it's everywhere. And so... Because of this, because of the widespreadness of Mormon theology and Mormon fundamentalism, we have this tension. And in Utah still, this homeschool idea is, is deeply rooted in, in American and Mormon politics. We've seen this with Donald Trump. We've seen this with the libertarian movement, how it's taken off in Utah. There's a reason for that. The idea of big government coming in and telling you what to do means that bigger government could come and tell you how to teach your faith. And Mormons do not sit kindly with those ideas. We just had recently the Bundys, Mormons who had a standoff against the government on, you know, about ranching rights. It's not dissimilar to this, to the 1970s and 80s, where Mormons were planning on showing up at courthouses with weapons and having standoffs with the government. And John Singer and Vicki Singer aren't the only ones. And we're going to talk about this coming up. There are more people than you know who get in this mentality and mindset and they're still existing today so this is just yet another way how polygamy has informed the american landscape and we'll talk about more ways next episode to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.